Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. This week, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Professor Joseph Nye from Harvard University, who is not just one of the really big thinkers about international order, has written many books and articles which have dissected the very idea of power in in a way that uh, nobody else has done uh, before with more granularity and more sophistication than than anyone else, but also thought a lot about uh, institutions and uh, has been a practitioner of the liberal order as well um, in various roles as chairman of the National Intelligence Council, as assistant secretary of defense, and most recently has written a book asking, is the US century over? Um, Joe, do you want to tell me what the liberal international order means to you? Well, it's a bit of a vague term because it means different things to different people. But basically, I use it to refer to the period after 1945, when the Americans realized that they'd made a terrible mess of the 1930s by not uh, standing up for an open international economy and resistance to aggression. And um, so you see Harry Truman responding in 46, 47 with the Truman Plan, followed by the Marshall Plan for European recovery in 48, followed by NATO in 49. And basically, that plus the institutions of Bretton Woods, the World Bank, the IMF, create a relatively open international economy and a system of alliances, which doesn't span the whole world. After all, the Soviets and the Chinese are outside of it. That's more than half the world. But it does create an alliance structure plus an open international economy that leads to quite a extraordinary degree of globalization and uh, economic growth and prosperity over the next 70 years or so. And that is what Trump is calling into question and what people think may be coming to an end. So do you think that it's just a rhetorical assault on the world order, which is coming out of Trump, or do you think it really is in danger? Well, I don't know, to be honest on that. Uh, I think that Trump will go down in history as something of a blip, but it uh, rather than a turning point. But it depends on such things as whether he gets into a major war uh, or whether we reach a great recession, which goes deeper than the last one, then it might be a turning point. And which, you know, bits of the order do you think are most at risk if you if you start breaking it down into different orders? Well, I'm struck by the fact that the alliance structure, the alliance system, which Trump criticized in the campaign, for example, saying NATO is obsolete and so forth, that alliance structure seems to have persisted uh, pretty well. I mean, he now thinks that NATO is no longer obsolete. He's reaffirmed the U.S.-Japan alliance uh, in Asia. 
Uh, that part of it, the what you might call the military security part, uh, is in better shape than one would have thought back in November, December, after the election. I think the part that's going to have a harder time is the international trade system, uh, where he's already pulled out of TPP. He's talking about uh, getting out of the North America Free Trade Association, uh, uh, you know, taking the U.S.-Korea trade arrangements and rewriting them, making it something which focuses more on uh, the surplus rather than the general approach to trade. I think that part is still very much up in the air. And if he does those things, that would probably tend to knock down the World Trade Organization as an institutional framework. So the military system has done better. The trade system, I think, is under uh, some threat. Uh, the financial system, the IMF, I think, is still fairly healthy, and there's a network of cooperation among uh, central bankers, uh, which tries to keep the system on an even keel. That, I think, is okay for now. So it's interesting how much the... Bretton Woods institutions have been provincialized by other institutions. I mean, the IMF and the World Bank are pretty tiny compared to the amount of capital which the Chinese are either putting into other countries through bilateral arrangements or even through some of the new institutions that they've created around the, the One Belt Run Road or the Belt and Road Initiative, as I think it's now called. No, I think that's true. And, and China has large financial reserves and they want to use them politically. But notice that uh, their aspirations to ha have the renminbi replace the dollar have not materialized. And part of this is that to have the Chinese currency replace the dollar requires major changes at home, such as convertibility of the currency such as a true rule of law uh, and ways in which state-owned enterprises don't get subsidized loans. I mean, there are a whole series of things where China is, is nowhere near where it was advertised or as wanting to be in terms of financial system. Financial flows, yes, a lot of money, but the role of the yuan or renminbi, uh, that hasn't replaced the dollar. And what about some of the other orders that have grown up more recently? For example, you know, in the in the 1990s and early years of this century, there was a big uh, revolution when it came to, to human rights with the responsibility to protect the International Criminal Court. And there seemed to be quite a, a major rethinking of what sovereignty looked like. Well, I think some of that was basically damaged well before Trump. I'm no defender of Trump in any way, but uh, remember R2P was perhaps damaged as much by the experience in Libya as uh, by anything subsequent. The Russians and the Chinese will, I don't think, be willing to vote for another Security Council resolution in support of R2P for a very, very long time. The International Criminal Court uh, has had a problem right from the beginning in the sense of not having adherence of the uh, many of the great powers on the uh, Security Council. Not least the um, states that loves referring other countries to the ICC but refuse to sign up to it himself. 
It's That's tough. right. And that that was true in the sense that for Obama, but now with Trump, it's not even going to go through some of the pretenses, I don't think. But the, the other part that of the system that I think is more in danger, no, there's, I think that part of the system uh, may have been, it had already been damaged. It may have been a step too far back in uh, at the turn of the century when people were pushing this uh, attack on sovereignty. Uh, in a sense, you might say that sovereignty is having a comeback, but sovereignty is a basic part of the post-45 order. It's written into the UN Charter. I think the part that's harder, is, that's a more under attack, is uh, global commons. And there, uh, I worry about, obviously, the Paris Agreement, and it looked like progress was being made on uh, climate change. Uh, Trump withdraws from Paris. That's damaging. On the other hand, how damaging it'll be remains to be seen, since we're talking about a long process, and the in the four years before Trump's actions become operative, uh, uh, it may turn out that if he's succeeded by a Democrat or a Republican who believes in climate change, that uh, Trump's actions won't turn out to have been that uh, significant. I think uh, there's also a danger, though, in terms of law of the sea, where the uh, Chinese refused to accept the law of the sea tribunal decision, which uh, said basically that uh, you can't... Uh, their position on the South China Sea of pouring sand on rocks, reefs, and atolls uh, was not didn't make uh, those sovereign territories, and the Chinese basically have not accepted that. Uh, so I'm more worried about the global commons issues than, uh, and we still don't have a a framework for cyber, and the UN group of governmental experts, which was making some progress. Uh, was unable to reach a conclusion at, in uh, July of this year. So I think that's an area where I, I, I think is uh, suffering damage. Okay. So it sounds like you think that some areas we basically there was an overreach and need to be abandoned, like some of the, the advances in human rights. Some areas need to be defended, like the commons and trade, and then other areas... Um, need to be built from scratch, like on cyber and uh, maybe space would probably be another area. Right. Um, right. And so it's a it's a mixed bag. I mean, I I and so when you say, are we at a turning point? Is are things getting a lot worse? It could be tipped one way or the other by what we call the accidents of history. Remember Harold Millen's famous McMillan's famous phrase: "Events, events dear people. boys, events." <laughs> and what do you think? the realistic options are for Europeans in this world where the US is either at least taking a holiday from um, from being an upholder of the, the global order and, and maybe becoming a destroyer of it, for, for at least in the short run. How much do you think it is realistic for people to see Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron as, as kind of leaders of the free world? Um, how much can Europeans do to uphold these different orders, either by acting unilaterally and relying on the extraterritoriality of European regulations because of the size of the EU market, 
or by reaching out to other powers like China or, uh, you know, India or Brazil on, on, on some of the, the different regimes which are being threatened by Donald Trump? Uh, I think Europe may play a more significant role. And the reasoning is that uh, Europe has a strong interest in a rules-based system. And it has market power from its uh, from its scale. I think uh, Brexit is a step backward in the wrong direction from my point of view. But uh, if the Europeans, particularly Macron and, and uh, Merkel working together, uh, start taking stronger positions on some of these global commons and trade issues, uh, that may be a step in the right direction. And what do you think is actually possible for Europeans to do in, in practice? I mean, you know, one question is on climate change, for example. If it's impossible to do things at a global level through global regulation, could the EU impose a carbon tax on people trying trying to sell into the European market and you try and use that to um, uh, to change behavior in other countries in the same way that the US has, has used its sanctions uh, as a way of changing the behavior of other countries possibly though notice that the big actor the biggest actor on climate change is is China and Europe would have to be willing to uh, risk a its trade relations uh, with China there's also the fact that Europe still needs the United States when it comes to defending itself against a very uncertain uh, Russia we don't know where Russia is going and uh, in that sense, uh, while I'd like to see further steps in European defense, um, I think you're still going to need the United States. So question of how much Europe wants to get into a real fight with the U.S. and China, which are the two biggest polluters, I think that's going to be tough. Um, are there other areas where Europeans could play a role in either defending the existing institutions or helping to create new ones? Well, I think uh, take the law of the sea. Uh, it's, the U.S. tries to persuade the Chinese that they should listen to the law of the sea tribunal. If the Europeans took the same position, that might be even more effective. So in that sense, there's a global commons where Europe has a strong interest in preserving it and where uh, the Chinese are trying to increase their position in Europe with one belt, one road. And if they worry about losing face in Europe, it's, I think that the Europeans can be a positive force there. The Europeans can also take uh, steps forward on in areas of cyber and um, where they've already done a certain number of things. And I think uh, that's a that's another area of which you could imagine progress. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because I know you've thought a lot about cyber and about the regulation of the Internet. I was in Silicon Valley uh, quite recently and was talking to some of the, the big shots in the valley about the, how they saw the future of their industries. And the one thing they did seem pretty worried about was was Brussels. They said to me that the big companies have a pretty good idea of how Washington works and how to stop nasty things coming out of Washington in terms of antitrust regulation and other kinds of um, interventions in the market. But that they had no idea about how Brussels worked and were slightly shocked at what happened to Apple and Google and were quite worried that the EU might end up causing existential damage to some of the, the, 
the, the biggest companies in the world? Well, a lot will depend on what Europe actually does. The idea that Europe should look seriously at antitrust and uh, I think can be healthy. The idea, though, that Europe will require data localization and sort of the return of sovereignty in the Internet world can be unhealthy. So Europe has had a, a longer tradition of concern about privacy and antitrust in this area. But if they overdo it, they can, uh, I think, set things back. But reasonable proposals could be something where you could get other countries perhaps to pay more attention. What do you think would be reasonable? Well, I think there's there are questions that can be raised about uh, the you know, what kind of market power over advertising and so forth that the large companies have. I also think the questions of what rights will be um, allowed in terms of control of data uh, by individuals. Questions about what's the right policy for the Internet of Things which is about to swap the Internet of people. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 25 billion connections to the Internet by 2020 uh, rather than just, you know, three or four billion humans. And we don't have a structure in terms of requirement of security or insurance policies so that the costs of the insecurity here, which are externalities for any given company, are not property uh, 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 internalized. So there are things where Europe could, I think, take a lead. I do think, though, that working with the Americans on this will be useful rather than just getting into a uh, situation which might be a tit-for-tat, leaving the rules weaker rather than stronger. And who do you think, if we look around uh, at the different countries in the world, who do you think is most vulnerable to some of the challenges to the liberal order, um, who is going to benefit from it in the next few years? Well, ironically, uh, Xi Jinping has uh, admitted at uh, Davos this year that China has benefited from the liberal order. But notice that he's talking about one aspect of it, which is the trade system and uh, sort of pushing the Chinese to realize that they have to go beyond just using the WTO in a way which doesn't have full reciprocity where state-owned enterprises are privileged. I think, you know, China benefits, but they're going to have to sort of live up more to their responsibilities. I think the Europeans actually would be considerably hurt by a a collapse of the liberal international order in all of its dimensions, all all the the four dimensions that we talked about. And I think the the United States would also be hurt, but so would a lot of smaller states. I mean, Brazil, uh, India, I think these countries have... I mean, those are not small states. I wasn't thinking of the of the really small states like Singapore and so forth. But I think a lot of, of emerging markets uh, still have a good deal to benefit from uh, having a relatively open international system. And I think uh, if it collapses, uh, they will begin to see the costs. What about the really small states who, in many ways depended the most on it because they can't rely on brute force to to prize open markets and to stop people from uh, breaking the rules. 
what can they do to defend themselves and to prevent the world becoming a much more brutal and Hobbesian place where the, the, the law of the jungle applies more than the law of courts? Well, there is a concern among small states that sometimes say these institutions were created without their say and therefore they don't help them. In fact, small states usually get more influence within institutions than without them. Without them, there's there really is just the law of the jungle. So behavior by small states, which tends to reinforce rather than undercut a rules-based system, is in their interest. But on the other hand, there's a great temptation to free ride. If you're a small state, people are, you know, you're not going to see the effects of your free riding the same way a larger state does. So I, I would hope that more states will take this position. You'll, you see this to some extent with climate change, where, where some of the island states, which are worried about being submerged to create caucuses and so forth. But I think we need to have more of the smaller states. Um, say, look, we've got a stake in this as well. What do you think is going to happen to the laws of war? I mean, you know, you talked about some of the new areas which are becoming weaponized, like cyber and uh, and space, and there are kind of big areas where the law has not been fully developed yet. But in a more traditional way, we are seeing uh, a kind of rowing back from sort of Westphalian protection of sovereignty. So there are lots of, of wars going on in the world where many countries are piling in either directly or supporting proxies in different areas. And if the old responsibility to protect the postmodern one, which was developed by, by Europeans and human rights activists, is, is receding, there are new kind of more uh, modern and pre-modern versions of the responsibility to protect which are coming forward, like the idea of protecting um, Shia or Sunnis for some countries or uh, ethnic Russians or ethnic Chinese. And um, we are seeing many more countries feeling both an obligation and also seeing a possibility of, of intervening in the internal affairs of their neighbors or even of countries which are further afield? Well, there's something to be said for going back to the UN Charter and Article 2, basically, which reinforces sovereignty. In other words, noble as the efforts were to develop R2P and to uh, say that there should be protection of of uh, mistreated peoples, and I would certainly agree with that. It's also true that the trend in the last 10 years or so has been a revival of sovereignty. And if we get into a world where uh, I can intervene across borders to protect fellow Shia or fellow Christians or whatever, uh, you're really back into the... Uh, the pre-sovereign, the pre-Westphalian world. And if you think back on uh, what that meant for 17th century Germany, it wasn't very nice. A lot of people died. What we're coming to is a sort of world where you have two classes of sovereignty. You've got the great powers who are, you know, still have Westphalian protections. And then everywhere else, which seems to be much more open for, for new kinds of great games and for these different types of interventions. Well, yes, but, you know, one of the things that was interesting, and we still haven't seen this game fully play out, was in the area of cyber and cyber warfare, uh, in the UN Group of Government Experts report in 2015, 
there was a agreement that the laws of armed conflict, international uh, humanitarian law, would apply. In other words, the principles of discrimination, i.e. you don't attack civilians and proportion, proportionality, those were encoded in some still very vague and general rules that states would not attack each other's civilian infrastructure. Um, that was interesting. It indicated that rather than things slipping backward, there was some progress. That has slowed or halted for now because the UNGG couldn't reach an agreement this summer. Whether that's permanent or whether uh, there'll be further progress in this, I'm not sure. And where do you see interference in other countries' elections fitting into this new world? Well, I think what you find is there's nothing all that new about it. Both of the Soviets and the Americans both did this during the Cold War. But what you have is, is it's just a lot easier to do it now. Yeah. Um, and how, you know, how does that fit into your bigger picture of the future of the liberal order? Right. And I think the key question is whether, how do you defend against this? One argument that people make is that you have to inoculate against it. And some people say that the French election was a good example, that the fact that uh, Macron and uh, his group alerted so many people in advance that the Russians were going to be deploying all sorts of disinformation uh, meant that when it did occur, it didn't have the same effect that it had in 2016 in the American election. And many people think that uh, Obama should have been much more open and said more about this in in the 2016 election. Uh, so it's, uh, finding ways in which you inoculate publics against uh, some of this is important. You're also seeing some of the companies beginning to be more careful about the way they treat botnets and, uh, you know, uh, spurious actors, which are basically amplifiers for governments like Russia. And uh, then also it's conceivable that at some point you could imagine something analogous to a an arms control agreement in which you which the Europeans and the Americans and the Russians said these are certain targets which are not acceptable in other words if you do this it's an unfriendly act i don't know that's it may be a bit of a stretch but you can imagine trying to set some limits in any case i think this is a game in mid play we're watching a match where the ball's still going back and forth across the net and we're not quite sure how it's going to turn out. But I don't think uh, the people who say, oh, it's just all downhill from here. I'm not sure. I think it's still an open game. OK, so I'm asking all of the people that I interviewed two questions. So I'm going to ask you those questions as well to, to bring this fascinating discussion to a conclusion. The first is just to complete the sentence. The liberal order is dot, dot, dot. The liberal order is under considerable challenge and attack but there may be more life in the system than people think because it benefits a great many of the key actors. Okay. And the second thing which I'm asking everyone is if people are interested in digging a little bit deeper than we've had a chance to do in this podcast, if they've been interested in the themes that we've been discussing, obviously 
they should read your book, Is the American Century Over? And your article on whether the liberal order is uh, over in foreign affairs from uh, last year. Um, but what else should be on their reading list? Well, there's been a whole series of, uh, of articles in foreign affairs on this theme. Uh, Gideon Rose, the editor, has basically uh, had a, oh, I don't know, a dozen or so more articles in the last uh, a few issues on this. And uh, I've always been partial to the pages of the Financial Times. Um, I don't always agree with them, but it's a thoughtful place to look at these questions. And uh, and I feel the same way about many of the uh, leaders in the the Economist on this, where they've tried to uh, present data, not just uh, opinion. So I think uh, it there's no one Bible on this, but one is going to have to use a number of sources. And are there any books or scholars or historical works which you think are helpful to understand where we are at the moment and, and how the world is changing? Well, John Eikenberry at Princeton has done some interesting work on this. He and um, Dan Dudney ha- have done an interesting article in uh, Survival uh, Journal of the IISS recently. Um, I don't think there's one book uh, since the election of 2016 is so recent, there's no one book you can say, well, this sums it up. But I I find my colleague, Danny Roderick, um, who has, from an economist's point of view, somewhat iconoclastic views on trade, he has a new book that's out on uh, how to think about getting the trading system more balanced in terms of making it more politically sustainable. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me, Joe. It's been absolutely fascinating as usual. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let your friends and colleagues know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on our Facebook page or yours. And above all, give us a ranking on iTunes or SoundCloud or MixCloud or whatever platform it is you're using to listen to us on at the moment. We have a limited number of beautiful end-of-the-world mugs, which say the end of the world is near, but the coffee is hot. And we will be sending uh, those mugs out to the very best reviews that we get on iTunes. So please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu if you want to have a chance to win one of these much coveted mugs. But for now, from Joseph Nye and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hackenbreich and our editor is Bullying Goemi. Goodbye.